So here are my thoughts. Um, we're going to be finishing the book of Genesis tonight. And then next week, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the presence of the book of Genesis in the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, there's some links there that are uh, embedded in the historical narrative. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then that'll be the end of this particular study called Extra Genesis. And then what I'd like to do is take a few weeks off the rest of August and, um, and then start a new topic in the beginning of September. But what I would like for you to think about is between now and next week, is there a particular subject matter, topic, or a question, or whatever it might be on your mind uh, that you maybe would like for me to address or research uh, for our next Wednesday study. So think about that and uh, shoot me an email or a text or you can tell me next week uh, when we get online. But we'll finish the uh, text of Genesis tonight with the last segment of uh, the narratives of the patriarchs. And we're going to talk about Joseph. And um, it, this particular section is quite interesting. And I Hope that uh, it's just not me nerding out on you tonight, um, <laughs> but um, I think you'll find it fascinating. Uh, in many ways, the narrative about Joseph, his uh, trip to Egypt and him becoming the savior of a people group that we know as the nation of Israel. Uh, in Genesis, it's Jacob. <clears throat> and his family. But um, I think what you'll find is it's remarkably structured. And so I want to begin tonight uh, by talking just a little bit about how Israel is saved, and that is saved from famine, saved from extinction, that type of thing. I want you to notice uh, this story covers chapters 37 through 50, and it's interesting what is happening here. Um, the editors of Genesis have been tracing out for us um, the lineage, and it's found in those Toledotes we have talked about in previous uh, weeks where these are the descendants of. And it's not just Adam, and it's not just Noah, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, there is this uh, information that's also given about some of the displaced elder brothers, such as Cain and Ishmael and Esau as well. Uh, the last focal point here is on Joseph. And what we find in this story is um, how the nation of Israel gets to Egypt. Um, and of course, Exodus continues that story on and some of the trials that they go through under the uh, oppression of Pharaoh. But um, embedded in this section, it will find some of the similarities that we've seen previously in Genesis. And that is, it kind of reflects uh, and anticipates uh, some of Israel's later experiences that are recorded not only in Exodus, but beyond Exodus, all the way to the Babylonian Empire. And um, so in many ways, Genesis is looking back and talking about the days of old, but um, this last section is um, about Jacob's favorite son from his favorite wife. And uh, what we'll find is Joseph is not just the favorite of Jacob, but he is going to be instrumental and almost in some ways he becomes um, almost a prefigurement of Christ. Um, some of the typology that, I don't know if you've heard of that term before where things in the Old Testament kind of preview some things that happen later in the life of Jesus. You have some similarities. I'll touch upon a couple of those tonight, but. Um, so, you know, it, he plays a vital role, not just in the history of the nation of Israel, but also a pattern that develops uh, that is fulfilled in the uh, life and ministry of Jesus as well. So any, any thoughts or comments as we move on? 
So if you have a Bible, we'll start off in chapter 37 of Genesis tonight, and I'm not going to hit every chapter on Joseph because it is lengthy, uh, but I think one of the things that we'll see here is that this narrative starts off uh, talking about Joseph being the favored son, and it's reflected by some of the special gifts that Jacob gives to him. And there is a flaw that we find in the life of Joseph. Um, this flaw turns out to be a part of God's plan all along. However, it's what gets him into trouble. And at the outset, uh, we find here that it says immediately in chapter 37, if you look down at verse 5, it says, Now Israel, that's the other name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. So what we find is this highly symbolic robe that is given to uh, Joseph is a way of Joseph flaunting his position in the eyes of his father. And it's also kind of flaunting uh, his position as um, the one that is going to get all the favoritism. And that's what this robe in many respects represents. And he also does something that probably is beneficial to Jacob, but um, would be very hated by his brothers. And in some ways, he's a snitch uh, for his dad. Uh, he's always keeping an eye out on his brothers and spying out the things that they're doing. And um, so he kind of rubs this in uh, the face of his brothers. And so here again, this whole theme of sibling rivalry comes out in the text. And the background, I think, to it is been laid in the previous chapters. Uh, but now it's not just sibling rivalry between two individuals. It's between Joseph and 11 other brothers. So it's highly significant. And um, in some ways, it kind of prefigures some of the animosity, some of the division, and some of the conflict that will come later between the tribes of Israel. Um, they will eventually split into two nations after Solomon's reign. And um, in some ways, this is almost kind of like the foreview of com the coming civil rivalry that turns into civil war almost in some respects because they divide and they uh, uh, become two nations. So in some ways, he's annoying uh, younger brother. And uh, he plays that part. And it finally comes to rest upon him when he has the audacity to talk to his brothers about two dreams that he has. And um, what we're told is that in verse five, this is the first of two dreams. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. The two dreams have the same message that he will one day have power, that he will one day rule over his brothers. And um, these uh, siblings of his uh, want to uh, lash out against this cocky younger brother. And um, it's interesting that they will choose to retaliate after the two dreams. Well, the first dream is of sheaves of grain and all these sheaves of grain of his brothers are bowing down to him. The second dream is in verse nine. It says, um, listen, he said, I had another dream. This time the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. So now mom and dad are also included in the dream. They're all submitting to him. And we see that not only did that while up the brothers, but even um, Jacob is a little concerned about that. In verse 10, uh, Jacob rebukes Joseph and says, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually bow down to the ground before you? And it anticipates that uh, movement into Egypt when um, there's a famine in the land. And certainly Jacob and his entire family will bow down to Joseph because Joseph will be second in command to Pharaoh. So um, 
they decide that they're going to get rid of him. And when uh, Joseph goes out mm -hmm. on reconnaissance to uh, spy on his brothers, they choose to take the opportunity while he is away from his brother, uh, his father, uh, to sell him into slavery. And, um, and that's what the rest of chapter 37 is all about. Now they need to um, somehow explain this to their father. So they are going to come up with a tale and take the robe and they are going to mark it up with blood and uh, they will take it back to their dad and say that he was attacked by an animal and he was killed. Um, and initially they want to murder him, but two individuals, uh, two of the brothers kind of step in. Reuben in verse 21 says, let's not take his life. And then Judah comes up with the idea of selling him to um, a band of Ishmaelites, you'll see in verse 26, that are coming along and these traders that are in travel. Um, it's interesting that they're Ishmaelites. Again, this civil rivalry is kind of playing off of what we saw earlier between Isaac and Ishmael as well. So um, they go back, they tell their dad that Joseph has been killed. Obviously, Jacob is devastated about it. Uh, his favorite son from his favorite wife has been killed. And in the meantime, uh, by the time you get to the end of chapter 37, um, we find that Joseph has been taken to Egypt and he's been sold to a man by the name of Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials. And you see that down in verse 36. Then you have this interruption with the Judah and Tamar incident that we talked about in previous weeks. And it breaks up the Joseph narrative a little bit here. And then it comes back around and picks back up in chapter 39. Um, I'm not gonna talk uh, about uh, Potiphar's wife, but that's really the story in chapter 39. Uh, Joseph is a handsome young man uh, he's prospering in Egypt. Uh, he is being trusted by Potiphar. He's an individual that is then, uh, uh, there is uh, a seduction that's taking place by Potiphar's wife. And he runs out and he leaves his garments in her hand. And she brings an accusation against him that uh, she, that he had attacked her. And so he's thrown into prison and that will set up um, um, the next segment here. And that is in this entire section of Genesis, there's a lot of dreams and these dreams are all connected to destinies. Uh, not only Joseph, he's already had two dreams, uh, but then when he is thrown into prison, there's the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer and uh, the dreams tell us of their destiny, of what's going to happen to them. And then Pharaoh has dreams. And it's not only talking about the future for him, but his entire reign, because it will anticipate a seven-year famine that is coming down the line. So on this slide, and you know, last week when I uh, looked at the video, I forgot to share the slides with you. So, um, you know, if something is wrong, always just speak up because I guess I forgot to share it. Now you can see the slides tonight, right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So I just forgot to share it and that's why you didn't see it last week, but unbeknownst to me, I was oblivious to it. So, um, that was on purpose. <laughs> well, could be, <laughs> but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't. So, um, the whole idea of dreams, uh, plays an important part in the Old Testament. Um, there is a significant amount of text in the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams as well. And there's kind of a superstition that goes along with uh, the dreams. Um, the dreams somehow are foretelling destiny. Um, and in the case of Joseph, they do. And in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, they do as well. But I'm not suggesting that what you dream about tonight is going to be a forecast for tomorrow or into the near future, but that's what they believe. And um, 
in those days, they needed someone to interpret it. And if you had that ability, uh, it was considered a very valuable skill. And, um, and so while Joseph is in prison, uh, the cupbearer and the baker uh, tell him their dreams. And we find that he tells them of their coming fortune and that's in chapter 40 of Genesis. Uh, one is going to be restored to his position. The other one is not um, going to be restored. Um, it seems as though, and you have to read between the lines a little bit here, um, that both were being mistrusted uh, by uh, the Pharaoh. Um, obviously, the cupbearer and the baker uh, could potentially poison the Pharaoh, if they wanted to throw a coup and overturn his rule. Um, maybe that's why they were thrown into prison initially. Somehow, uh, what we find is that the cupbearer is restored, the baker will be executed. So um, I don't know if there was other information that came out, other testimony that allowed this one man to uh, escape uh, execution while the other one is uh, hanged. The chief baker is hanged. Um, but Pharaoh um, has concern. And, and what we find is when he has his dream, and that's where we come to chapter 41, he has two dreams as well. And uh, the first uh, is uh, seven heads of grain uh, that are good and healthy, and then some thin heads of green, grain are swallowing it up. And, and so here is a dream that he is confounded by. The initial dream was uh, seven fat cows, that's in verse two, um, and then seven gaunt cows. So the cows and then the heads of grain, they're both the same, uh, they're both the same message. Uh, they're just two different imageries. And what we find is that he is confused and confounded by what these mean. And at that point, the cupbearer says, oh yeah, there was this guy in prison that's a Hebrew and he has the ability to interpret dreams. Daniel will be pulled out into, uh, I'm, Dan, well, I'm gonna talk about uh, Daniel later in the book of Daniel is, is uh, also called into Nebuchadnezzar's presence as well. Um, and so these individuals are sought out um, because they have this reputation that they're able to forecast the future. So um, what Joseph then interprets basically is that there are going to be seven abundant years and then seven years of famine. And uh, Pharaoh uh, needs to know what to do. And Joseph has this ability to tell um, him to store as much grain as possible during the abundant years, and then they'll be able to ride out uh, the years of famine. And so that is told in chapter 41. And you can see, if you're just looking at your Bible, there's a lot of text in there uh, in this regard. And uh, to kind of close the loop on this, um, by the time the seven years are up, and famine starts to hit, it not only affects Egypt, but it affects the surrounding nations as well. And that includes Jacob and his family. And uh, so Jacob, uh, I love this, when in chapter 42, uh, I love when he looks at his sons and he says, uh, he, he, he learns that there's grain that could be purchased in Egypt. And he looks at his sons and says, well, why do you just keep looking at each other? go, <laughs> go already down to Egypt and get some grain. So um, they're scratching their head and Jacob tells them to get down to Egypt. And it's there that Joseph recognizes them. It's there that Joseph will play a trick on his brothers a couple of different times and then eventually reveal himself to them. And there's sort of a reconciliation that goes on uh, and this reconciliation comes at a great uh, cost to the brothers because he, he demands that the youngest brother, Benjamin, who was left 
uh, back at home come down uh, before he will release uh, the one um, that was held back uh, as kind of assurance that these um, these brothers would come back and, and get him. And so um, Benjamin comes back as well. And by the time all of them make this second journey down to Egypt in chapter 43, uh, Joseph is ready at that point to break the news that um, he is their brother. And it, it's very emotional. Um, uh, in chapter 45, he reveals that I am Joseph in verse three. And then he seems to have come to a place where he's matured. And um, in chapter 45, you'll see in verses five through seven, uh, he's addressing his brothers. He says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, the language that is being used here in verse 7 is intriguing. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. That language of remnant comes from later, uh, it really comes from later books in the Old Testament. And you can see uh, that idea of remnant is found in Ezra, Isaiah, and Jeremiah quite, uh, quite profoundly. And it seems as though this is what's being anticipated in Genesis, that they will also not only go into captivity in Egypt, but they will go into captivity in Babylon. But God will send back a remnant, and the remnant will return to Jerusalem. And so the nation has not been lost. Uh, it, uh, the people have not been annihilated. Uh, it will be a small group, uh, relatively speaking, but still this remnant is the seed that will then allow the nation to continue. Um, so here's kind of that later anticipation of what's coming in the Old Testament. Um, brothers come back to Canaan. They give Jacob the good news that Joseph is alive. And uh, what we find next, if you uh, look down to chapter 47, verse 27, um, there's another interesting little statement that is made here. Um, now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and they were fruitful and increased greatly in number. This is that creation mandate again, to be fruitful and multiply. So there, it, the, the, the promise of creation and then the promise of the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. It's still operative and God is still being faithful to it. And, um, and so you, again, this text is looking back uh, in some ways, but it's also anticipating the future. So let me see if you have some thoughts, questions. I kind of took several slides and kind of gave you the big picture at this point, but uh, anything you want to comment on? Okay. Now we come to the symbolic nature of Joseph's story. <clears throat> I mentioned a moment ago that sometimes, not everything in the Old Testament, but some things in the Old Testament uh, have a certain typology to it. And typology kind of is a uh, kind of a special genre of something that happens and then you see it happen again. And then ultimately you see it happen case of the scriptures in the person of Christ. So what we find is Genesis kind of hints at uh, things that we've seen in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It anticipates some of the things that are going to happen in Egypt. It anticipates things that are going to happen also in 
uh, Babylon. But if we stretch the story out far enough, um, this is a story of death and resurrection as well. For the way the text is talking about it is that Joseph is left for dead and he's thrown into a pit or a, a dry cistern. He's taken down to Egypt and then he is raised up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. Um, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. Um, and then it is revealed that he is alive. And so um, what's fascinating here is this whole idea of kind of death and resurrection is almost kind of embedded into the story. Um, we talked a little bit about Abraham uh, going to sacrifice Isaac. And I said, it's almost as if the book of Romans chapter four was anticipating death and resurrection in the life of Isaac as well, even though God intervened and provided a ram. But <clears throat> this whole life from death is a pattern that we see in Genesis. And it's almost as well applied to the whole nation of Israel as well. It was taken to Egypt. It is floundering uh, under slavery, and then it is brought out of slavery. Um, and then again in Babylon. And then what we see is that even in the days of Jesus, they are laboring under captivity to Rome as well. And so this is both a personal story of Joseph and then Jesus, as well as a national story of Israel in the Old Testament and the anticipation of um, what Jesus would do in bringing the kingdom of God. And of course, um, um, Jesus weeps over the fact that um, his people only wanted physical deliverance. They didn't want the spiritual dynamic that he was bringing as well. And, and yet, what we find is in his resurrection, it starts a new movement from death of Israel comes the life of a new uh, entity, and that is the church. Um, so um, there is some symbolism here, and I think it's kind of embedded in various parts of the Joseph story. You have some thoughts or comments there? Okay, now... I'm going to nerd out on you for a few moments, okay? So I think some of you who've been uh, in Bible study with me for a long time have heard this term before that the Old Testament loves a thing called chiasm. And chiasm is where the entities of a story are parallel. So you have one thing that happens and it's paralleled later. And then the next thing and the next thing. And it keeps going down until you get to a point. And the point is the central idea. And so now take a look at this slide here. Uh, the Joseph narrative is the most intricately composed, complex, and relatively long unit in the whole, whole Old Testament. The Joseph story is 40, 446 verses long. So it's very, very lengthy. And yet the way the editors break up the uh, components of this story is absolutely amazing. And I'm going to show it to you in a second. The whole narrative has this chi chiastic structure to it. Now, you can either think of it as an X um, coming to a point, or you can think of it as kind of a sideways V that comes to a point. And um, the uniqueness of the structure, the way it is composed, is the most important part of these parallel items is to get to the center. And at the center, you have this, um, this central idea that seems to be the driver of the story. So let me illustrate. So if you look at the um, Joseph narrative. You have an introduction in chapter 37, verses one and two. Then point A, you have the hostility of the brothers in chapter 37, verses one through 11. 
But if you look at A, and then you look at the parallel here, so the hostility of the brothers to Joseph is countered by him assuring and reassuring his brothers by, by the time you get to the end in chapter 50. Then point B, there's the apparent death of Joseph and Jacob is mourning. And the parallel to it is at the end of the book, you have the death of Jacob and Joseph is mourning as he buries him. Point C, there's an interlude between uh, that story of Judah and Tamar. But in chapter 49, there's also an interlude. And the interlude is Jacob calling his sons together uh, to pronounce a blessing and kind of a forecast upon what's coming upon each of them. Then you have E and E. The wisdom of Joseph is revealed in his ability to uh, uh, tell dreams and uh, interpret them and so forth. And that's stressed again in chapter 47, verses 13 through 26. Um, and so you bring it to point F, there's a movement to Egypt. And then the parallel in chapter 46 is they settle in Egypt. But right in the center of this whole narrative that's working as a V, you have the genealogy of Israel. And that's found in chapter 46, verses 8 down through 27. And the, here is where you have all the sons of the 12 sons. And listed are the sons of Reuben and Simeon and Levi, so on and so forth. And that is the basis for the nation. All these tribes then are the, are the foundation of the ongoing uh, uh, nation of Israel. So... That's what this big V represents here that's on its side, okay? You'll notice here, though, there's a bunch of Vs, 15 of them within the big V, okay? Now, here's where I'm nerding out on you, okay? This big chiastic structure has 15 chiast uh, chiastic structures within the big one. Okay, so I'm just going to show you one right now. So let me come back here. So right here, number one is, okay, we're going to pick up in chapter 37, the beginning of the story of Joseph and the hostility of the brothers. So we've already seen the big parallel in the overall unit. Now, notice how this works here. So episode number one. Israel, that is Jacob, has a preferential love of Joseph. Now, when we find, so turn to uh, chapter 37. So go back to, uh, in your Bible. Chapter 37, we'll try to illustrate this. So you have, uh, this is verses 2 through 11. So this is the account of Jacob. This is the Toledot. These are the descendants of. It says here that in verse um, uh, two, it gives us a description of Joseph. And then in verse three, we already read, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. But if you come down to verse 11, um, it says here, his brothers uh, were keeping these dreams in mind um, and they, they, excuse me, let me back up. His brothers were jealous of his dreams, but notice what it, it says here, but his father kept the matter in mind. So even, even though Jacob is kind of thrown under the bus because he's going to be bowing to Joseph as well, he's pondering this and his preferential love is still being displayed, even though he could be as angry with Joseph as the brothers are. Point B, the brothers hated Joseph. Uh, we see that in verse four. Um, and then if you come down, then they envy Joseph because of his positions. Uh, they're jealous of him. So there's parallels there. And then the brothers are silent toward Joseph. So they're at verse four. 
when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. They gave him the cold shoulder. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now notice here in point C down here uh, in verse 10, when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you have? So they're both kind of reacting the same way toward Joseph. One is giving the silent treatment. The other is an actual verbal um, uh, reprimand. So then you come down to the reactions. Uh, the brothers react to the first dream in verse five. And then uh, Jacob reacts to Joseph's second dream. Then point E to E, Joseph. Uh, uh, first dream is reported. In verse 6, it tells us about the sheaves of grain. And then in verses 9 and 10, uh, you have the report of the second dream, um, which is about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. But right in the middle of it, in verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. So this is another kind of a chiastic structure where you have parallels. Now, by parallels, we don't mean necessarily identical, but there's enough information that is reflective of the first statements that you can see that it's intentional by the way that it is written. Now, can you imagine? Going through this amount of material in the overall chiasm here, and 15 times within that, being able to structure parallel after parallel after parallel after parallel uh, in all the subsequent paragraphs. It's, um, it's an amazing uh, liter piece of literary genius. It really is. So let me stop there and uh, we're not going obviously going through all these episodes, but if you were to take the time and if you were to Google it, you would find uh, that each of the paragraphs uh, in Genesis uh, uh, in, in relationship to Joseph, that is, uh, are built on chiastic structure. I mean, it's just, it's amazing um, what the writers did and the complex um uh, structure that they put in place. Thoughts, comments, questions? Or you can just make a statement. Move on, nerd. <laughs> so how, how, do, how do we know this was, um, this was uh, thought this structure was developed back then or was it just not coincidental, but interpreted that way by us, by later scholars? It's an observation that is built on, um, this is a, an Old Testament um, dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. It's parallelism um, that seems to be driving the way they write their material. Um, let me take an aside for a second. When you read the book of Psalms, which is poetry, notice in the verses, that uh, the psalmist will make a statement and then he will parallel it with another statement that is either a direct parallel called synonymous parallelism, or it can be a, a contrastive parallelism as well, but it's always stated twice. So to answer your question, Bud, I think scholars who can see this better than we can see it sometimes in English because of the usage of Hebrew words is going, oh my goodness, we're noticing patterns here. And these patterns um, are showing up all in many, many places all through the Old Testament, which seems to have been, uh, especially in the poetical sections of the Old Testament, their dynamic way of keeping people interested in the material. So for us, poetry is not built on parallelism. It's usually built, or at least the most simple um, poems are built on, um, on rhythm and built on rhyme. So in English, 
um, rhythm and rhyme seems to be kind of our way of communicating artistic things. Um, whereas in the Old Testament, this whole dynamic of parallelism seems to be at play in all kinds of places in the Old Testament. So to answer your question, this were they conscious of this? I think so, yes. Um, were, was it driven by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Spirit? I think so, yeah. Um, did they consciously know? I think when you see, especially the Joseph narrative, I think there was a lot of thought that was put into it. And, um, and so, I, and it was really scholars that began to notice these things and they go, here it is again, here it is again, here it is again. And uh, so I think that's how it, how it came to our mm -hmm. awareness uh, was just by the repetition of it. Okay. Other comments or questions? So here are all the episodes. So, I mean, if you were to take the time and look at each one of these paragraphs, now you might need some help because in English, it might not be as apparent as it is in Hebrew. So remember, uh, English has a lot more vocabulary available to us than, than Hebrew. Um, Hebrew has a smaller vocabulary pool and so you'll see the repetition of words. And um, a lot of times you'll see um, the roots of Hebrew words uh, being changed a little bit, but there's a direct connection. Uh, you can see that it's being done intentionally. So I wouldn't lose any sleep over this. I just wanted to point out that, oh, we, we have an amazing piece of literature here uh, that is, I don't think, fully appreciated a lot of times by us who kind of read episodes kind of standing on their own rather than seeing how it fits into the, the overall structure and stuff. Any thoughts? Okay, so uh, another thing that's going on in this section is uh, liter literary doublets. And what I mean by that is things happening twice. So uh, here's a couple of uh, examples. So Joseph's punishments. Uh, he's thrown into a pit and then he's thrown into prison. Um, he is stripped naked twice, once by his brothers and one by Potiphar's wife. So there's the, it, it repeats again. So this whole idea of two keeps coming up in Joseph's story. And that appears in the dreams as well. So Joseph has two dreams. When he's in prison, there's two dreams, even though it's not the same person's dreams, it's the baker and the cupbearer. And then Pharaoh has two dreams as well. So uh, two seems to be kind of a, a dominant thing that's going on in this last section of the book of Genesis. Now, here's another thing that's kind of interesting. So go over to chapter 39. In chapter, thir uh, not 39, 49 rather. Uh, chapter 49 is that interlude that I talked about a moment ago where Jacob is uh, blessing his sons and he names each of them. I just want you to notice a, a couple of observations of what's happening here. So the blessing is not just uh, a wish for a good future. The blessing also in some ways is predicting the future or anticipating the future of each of these boys. And if you were to read through it, it has a lot of rich imagery in it, uh, a lot of uh, metaphors. Uh, in the original language, it has a lot of wordplay that goes on in it as well. But uh, each of these blessings here seems to anticipate what is going to show up later in the Old Testament as it, as it kind of works itself out. And um, 
So I'll just show you a couple of them here. Um, in verse three, he addresses Reuben. Now remember, some of this, if you remember the story as it's come before, you go, hmm, why is this, why is this the way it is? Reuben is the one that says, let's not kill Joseph, right? <laughs> There's got to be a different way than killing Joseph. But here, the blessing is Reuben, verse 3, you are my firstborn by might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Ah, but turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch and defiled it. And so, you know, he, he, uh, he ultimately even though he's the one that spared Joseph's life, um, this is as much of a, a, a reprimand upon Reuben as it is um, a, an anticipation of a good future. So then verse five, Simeon and Levi uh, are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they plead. Please, these, these are angry tribes that have done some unjust things uh, to other people. And, uh, and violence is uh, what's coming down the line for them. And then finally, you get here to the middle. It's not really the middle, but... Uh, it's the longest section, and that's to Judah. And it says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. And again, this is disrupting the blessing of the firstborn. Um, he is the one that's being predicted as the success. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You know what this is anticipating? David anticipating the success of David and his reign. And um, it says here, you are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. So there's this anticipation of his exaltation, and he will be the line of kings and uh, that type of thing. Something else to notice here when you read all of these is how many times um, imagery of animals come up. And there's the attachment of animals to not all of them, but to many of them. So we just read here about Judah. He's like a lion. Um, down in verse 14, Issachar is like a donkey. Uh, verse 16, Dan, uh, verse uh, 17, Dan is like a serpent. Um, so uh, it's just interesting how these blessings play out when you look at uh, the different um, characters as well as um, the animal that kind of is the figurehead of what their future is going to be like. Now, it's interesting, if you jump all the way down to verse 27, remember Benjamin is the other favored son from his favorite wife. And it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey, and in the evening, he divides the plunder. <laughs> uh, so he is pictured as a, um, a, ravage, a ravaging wolf that, uh, that drags off uh, the spoils of war, that type of thing. So I just think it's kind of interesting that um, Jacob doesn't pronounce really all blessings, but some burdens as well that uh, these figureheads of the different tribes will carry forward. Some thoughts there? Okay, so finally, um, Jacob, uh, as he blesses Judah, uh, anticipates uh, Judah reigning over his brothers. Um, Judah will eventually 
be the one that uh, names the southern kingdom. So when the kingdoms the kingdom divides into two kingdoms, the uh, tribes of the north are called Israel, obviously, uh, after <laughs> Jacob, but the southern tribes are uh, Judah. And so uh, Judah and Benjamin are the two tribes of the southern kingdom, but the name is attached to Judah. And uh, so he has this exalted place in Jacob's blessing. Um, and what we find, though, is as we move on from the book of Genesis, um, this transition from a family and tribes to a full-blown nation will not be easy. Uh, they will go through a lot of trouble and travail. And uh, what we find is that that's kind of been the story of Israel all through her history has been one of struggle and blessing at the same time. And um, even in our own news cycles, I think what we find is that there are those moments we go, how is this nation that we call Israel, how has it ever survived all these attacks, um, all, all the people that have wanted to annihilate them, uh, the Holocaust and all that type of thing. And uh, it all goes back to that name, one who wrestles with God and won't let go until he has a blessing. Um, so uh, that kind of brings us to the end of the book of Genesis. And um, um, we've got a few moments. Do you have any thoughts, comments, questions that um, we've looked at over the last eight weeks that you want to bring up? Really, it really is a fascinating book, isn't it? It's really, it really is a, a masterpiece. Complicated. Yeah, it's very complicated. Yeah. You know, um, that's really true of the whole Bible. And I think that when we try to make it easy peasy, um, I don't think we're doing people uh, justice by saying, Oh, it's simple. It's simple. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's not simple. I mean, good Bible teachers can make it seem as if it's simple, but it's not. It's very complicated and uh, a lot of twists and turns to it. And, you know, you got to stick with it. And then you get, get to your eyes, I think, begin to kind of dial in to some of these things then. And, and you begin to notice them more as you, as you read on your own. Some thoughts, comments, questions, concerns? Well, that's where we'll end the book of Genesis, but we won't end the influence of Genesis. We'll look at uh, that next week and then we'll finish up this particular topic. So, um, I will uh, close there and uh, see if you have any anything else that uh, you want to say before we say good night. Thank you. Thanks oh, for you're welcome. Glad Thank to do you. it. Yeah, All right. You. Have a good rest of the week, everybody. We'll see you All soon. Right, okay. Me too. Bye. 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 Thanks, Laura.